Trust the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. Well, dress listeners, we start today's episode with a love story of epic Olympic proportions <laughs> and origins. <laughs> In fact, without the 1948 Olympics, one of fashion's most beloved brands quite possibly would not exist. April, let's just say the Olympic flame was not the only flame lit at the 1948 Olympics. Today's story actually begins in 1940 when the U.S. Olympic Committee published their report for the Games of the 12th Olympiad. Gone were the glowing reviews and praise of Hitler and the Nazi regime's 1936 Olympics and gone were the Olympics. With the outbreak of World War II, this basically ensured that the next summer games, originally meant to be held in Helsinki, Finland, were indefinitely postponed. Yeah, and so reads the U.S. Olympic Committee's report from that year, quote, the United States was ready, but the world itself was not. It is the fervent hope of the committee that the turmoil into which the universe has been tossed will subside soon, so that the Olympic ideal of brotherhood among men may emerge triumphant. May the Olympic flame never die, and may the Olympic ideal soon again prevail as an indication of mankind's return to sanity. So the Olympics would not return until 1948 when they opened in London. The International Olympic Committee, referred to hereafter as the IOC, had made some noticeable changes in the war's wake. The Olympic salute, long and opening ceremony staple, was gone because apparently it was too similar to the Nazi salute, although (laughs) not related at all. Yeah. But, but um, you know, other elements did remain. While it originated at the so-called Nazi Olympics of 1936, the IOC decided to keep the Olympic torch lighting ceremony and the relay as a symbolic gesture. And the so-called relay of peace conducted through war-torn Europe became a really touching emblem of goodwill between nations. The London Games offered an opportunity to boost morale and exhibit much-needed international solidarity after the brutalities of World War. So former adversaries who fought on opposite sides of the battlefield were now athletic competitors. 4,104 athletes from 59 countries competed in 136 events in these games, and that included two Italian World War II veterans and track and field teammates by the name of Giorgio and Ottavio. What's particularly cool about these two is not only were they stellar athletes, they were active wear designers. And following World War II, they went into business together creating wool track suits, which they and their fellow Olympic teammates wore at these 1948 games. Ottavio even made it all the way to the finals in the 4 by 400 meter hurdle race at Wembley Stadium, but his team did not place. They didn't finish. There was no reason given But we have to wonder if it was perhaps that he got a little too distracted by the good Mm, looks of his his future wife, who was then a 16-year-old student by the name of Rosita 
Gelmini, and she was in the stands. So apparently she noticed him as well, because Rosita later recalled in an interview with NBC News, quote, our student seats were right near the changing rooms at Wembley Stadium. I saw him. He looked like he was 21, but I found out later that he was 27. He had an extraordinary running style. Well, Octavio and his teammates also noticed Rosita and her friends invited them to lunch. And what can we say? The rest is actually not just history, but it's fashion history. Because how many of you listeners out there have heard of the knitwear brand called Missoni? I love this story so much. Yes, that Masoni. I mean, talk about an Olympic match made in fashion heaven or maybe a fashion match made in Olympic heaven. Either way, the couple was married in 1953 and they set up a workshop together continuing the production of tracksuits until they moved on to the production of their now signature knitwear. The couple showed their first knitwear collection in Milan in 1958 and soon after rose to international success from the 1960s onward. And the duo really built this family empire selling their now signature brightly colored knitwear designs with their three kids taking over control of the business in the 1990s. Yes, and we will get to the 1990s soon enough, dress listeners, but in the meantime, we still have a lot of laps to swim over these next two episodes before we can get to our ultimate finish line, the 2020-21 Tokyo Olympics. So, Please forgive us while we hit fast forward on the remote. Yeah, because did we mention that the 1948 games were the first to be televised and broadcast around the world to people's homes? So today's episode will conclude with the 1968 Olympics held in Mexico City. And in order to get there, let's quickly hit some of the highlights from the three Olympic games we will be rock climbing, cycling, and vaulting by with great speed. At the 1952 Helsinki Olympics, American Olympic diver Sammy Lee was the first man to win back-to-back gold medals for the U.S. when he took home the gold for the 10-meter platform for the second Olympics in a row. He had previously won the gold at the 1948 Olympics, where he had also become the first Asian-American man to win an Olympic gold medal. And Lee's achievements are incredible when you learn that as a kid, he honed his skills in a soft sand pit behind his (laughs) diving coach's house (laughs) in the backyard. (laughs) Amazing. And the reason for this was because segregation in America meant that Lee was only allowed to swim at his neighborhood pool once a week on quote-unquote international day. But obviously, he persevered training or, or rather diving his way through sand to to (laughs) go on to win Olympic gold. This is an amazing story. Let's take a brief breather at the 1956 Melbourne Olympic Games, the Olympics that Speedo credits with transforming them into a world-famous brand. As an Australian company, Speedo sponsored the entire Australian swim team who took home eight gold medals. So moving forward, Speedo will become a go-to for Olympic swimmers from around the world, really solidifying their status as the world's leading swimwear company. At the 1960 Summer Olympics in Rome, Ethiopian runner Abebe Bakila became the first African Olympic gold medalist when he won gold in the marathon. And get this, he did it barefoot. 
So just to be clear, a Bebe ran 26 miles without shoes? Is this what I'm understanding? Yes, you would be correct. He had actually purchased new shoes for the race, but they gave him blisters. So, you know, a great example of how dress can be both helpful, but also a hindrance to athletic achievement. When we consider that the ancient Greeks competed naked, it becomes very clear that anything can be achieved with a little perseverance and commitment. Bakilid would become a back-to-back Olympic gold champion when he again won the marathon in 1964 Tokyo, the first ever athlete like Sammy Lee in diving to achieve the win in the marathon in back-to-back Olympics. And he did both in world record time. So, so many incredible athletes to highlight from these games, April, so little time. I know. And we can't talk about 1960 without talking about Wilma Rudolph, the first American woman to win three track and field gold medals in a single Olympics. Rudolph also has an, a remarkable story because she contracted polio as a young girl. And at that time, she was told by her doctor that she would never walk again. So as a track and field gold medalist, talk about beating all odds. <laughs> Yeah, in 1960 was also the year that marked the first Paralympic Games with participation from 400 athletes from 23 countries. The Games have since taken place in tandem with the Olympic Games, hence the use of the Greek word para, which means beside or alongside. The Olympics official website briefly sums up the movement's history, which dates back to the Olympics of 1948, when, quote, Sir Ludwig Gutmann introduced the first Stoke Mandeville Games for World War II veterans with spinal cord-related injuries. Later, other disability groups also established their international sports organizations, which arranged various competitions. And many of these organizations would then go on to join forces to create the first Paralympic Games of 1960. Fast forward to the 1964 Olympic Games in Tokyo, Japan, the first to be held in an Asian city and the first to be broadcast live across the world in color. And as the USOC official handbook tells us, the 361 athletic competitors from the U.S. appeared at the opening ceremony in, quote, uniforms designed by leaders of the American apparel industry, end quote. American track and field sprinter Wyoming Atias, who would take gold in the 100-meter sprint, had a thing or two more to add to this very topic. However, in her interview with the LA84 Foundation, she describes her parade uniform in detail. And let's just say she minces no words in sharing how she felt (laughs) about it. (laughs) Yeah, she says, quote, For our parade uniform, we had white dresses with a little headband we had on our head and a blue top and we had these capes for raincoats because it was during the rainy season in Japan and so we had these ugly we said ugly capes which were (laughs) reversible on one side it was a solid color and on the other it was a check oh they were ugly the men had better uniforms she goes on to say quote we just died to trade with the Germans the Germans and Swedes They had great uniforms. We could not wait to get rid of ours. (laughs) People ask me now, don't you still have your uniform? No, I traded it away as fast as I could. The day after the opening ceremonies, it's like, who wants this? Needless to say, she was not a fan. (laughs) Please don't mince your words, as you said. So one thing before we hit fast forward on that remote again, April, I had this very memorable moment in Lourdes Font's fashion history course and the MA program at FIT. 
And you're going to have to tell me if she did the same thing when you were there, because basically in her lecture on 1960s fashion, she shows this picture of Yves Saint Laurent and as a young man. So he's still a designer at Dior. He's very sophisticated and proper despite his young years. You know, he has short style haircut. He has a suit and tie. But then she cuts to a picture of him when he's starring in his own advertising campaign for his Reeve Gauche perfume. And his hair is shaggy. It's obviously grown out. He still has his glasses. And April, he is completely naked. <laughs> At this point, the class screams with laughter, after which Lourdes says, the 1960s happened to Yves Saint Laurent. <laughs> <laughs> and this really has stuck with me 10 years later because nothing could have demonstrated the effect the 1960s had on people more than this extreme visual juxtaposition of these images. Okay, I just have to say that she did, uh, to my memory, she did (laughs) not do this in our class. Um, But, and the only reason I say that is because I remember the first time I actually ran across an actual print of that photograph in special collections. And all day I was running around showing everybody that would listen to naked me. Yves Saint I'm like, look, it's, it's Yves Saint Laurent, naked. <laughs> so yeah, really, really, it's true. It, you know, from the early 60s to the late 60s, it's a little bit like night and day. And the same can be said about this juxtaposition of the 1964 and the 1968 Olympics, because a lot had changed in those four years. So more on that after we jump on our sticker-studded skateboards, the sport that makes its Olympic debut this year, and kickflip into a sponsor break. Well, it's 1968, and needless to say, like YSL, the 60s happened to the Olympics. In other words, many of these social, cultural, political, and even fashion-related changes that define the revolutionary nature of this turbulent decade had clearly come to bear on the Olympic Games themselves in more ways than one. So held in Mexico City, the very first Latin American country, the Games of the 19th Olympiad have been called the most politically charged in history, which is saying rather a lot when you consider that in the last episode, we talked about the 1936 Olympics, which were held in Nazi Germany. Yeah. So there were a lot of memorable moments at these 19th. 68 Olympics April. And thanks to innovations in printing technology for the first time, the United States Olympic Committee brings them to us in full color in the Olympic book of 1968. So not like the 1968 Olympics themselves, this book is remarkably different than its predecessors that we've been referencing this whole series in many ways. So remember, we've been quoting these reports since the 1920s games, but this is no longer an official report. So gone are the detailed explanations of the behind the scene happenings of the Olympics. Unfortunately, that means that gone are the detailed insights into the production and distribution of Olympic dress as well. Yes. Instead, in this 1968 book, the reports are replaced by an entertaining review of the, quote, stirring pageantry and athletic performance of the games. To achieve this, the USOC hired top sports writers from the U.S. and Europe, and the book is really combining a lot of action shots of athletes in full color 
And it captures the Olympics in a way not previously seen, kind of setting a new standard for the USOC coverage of the Olympics moving forward. And this is a really radical break and a fitting metaphor for the 1968 Olympics themselves, which similarly embodied the spirit of the late 1960s. Yes, and especially in the realm of dress, which we are seeing in an entirely new light for the first time, thanks to this crystal clear color photography. So the 1960s is really this period that's known for a fashion revolution that effectively recharted a new path for both men and women's fashion. And this can really be seen in the U.S. athletes' uniforms in the opening parade and the opening ceremony. So we have all the athletes, of course, marching in unison, as we're so used to seeing, but the women are wearing this long-sleeved white shift you know, knee-length dress. And there's these pops of colors coming from this giant red and blue chevron across their chest. And this is paired with white tights, navy blue heels, and even a white shoulder purse. And not to be upstaged, the men present quite the showing as well. For the first time, possibly ever, the men appear without hats and in something very befitting of the decade, turtlenecks. And of course, (laughs) you know that look. We all know that look. (laughs) Uh, worn under a double-breasted red blazer and paired with white slacks. I'm not sure how much more 1960s Ken Barbie or or even early 70s you could get. (laughs) (laughs) And I cannot stop thinking about how hot these athletes must have been given what I'm assuming was very warm weather in Mexico in the summer. But the same cannot be said of the uniform for a 20-year-old runner by the name of Enriquita Basilio Sotelo, who made history by becoming the first woman in all of the Olympics to light the Olympic flame. And she did so in basically what can be described as a white t-shirt and hot pants. (laughs) (laughs) Technically, this term for the shortest of shorts was not coined until 1970. But at the 1968 Olympics, uniforms are arguably the most body-bearing in history. Thanks a lot to these short shorts that you see across the board. But we've really come a long way, April, from banning women from bearing too much shoulder blade, a path no doubt forged by these pioneering women athletes. Absolutely. And after the lighting of the torch came the passing of the Olympic flag, another highly symbolic display in which the host country of the previous year's Olympics, in this case, the previous Olympics had been hosted by Japan, the host country the previous year passes the Olympics, as represented by the Olympic flag, to the new organizing city. The tradition is known as the Antwerp Ceremony, named after the Antwerp Games of 1920, where it first began. In Mexico City, the flag was ceremoniously marched in by a Japanese delegation that included six women wearing kimono who ceremoniously passed the flag slash the Olympics to six Mexican women similarly donned in distinctive national attire. In a sea of suits and ties and shift dresses, the visual display stands as a striking reminder of the power of clothing as the countries use dress to relay their unique cultural heritages. And these women, like the uniformed Japanese and Mexican athletes, also embody the pride of a nation. However, this visual display of Mexico's cultural heritage was confined to the ceremonial aspects of the Olympics. So the transfer of the flag, the medal ceremonies, etc. In almost every other aspect, Mexico really sought to put forth an image of a forward-thinking, progressive nation. Of course, one that had deep cultural roots, but one that was up to speed with the advancements of the so-called modern age. 
So not only did they use clothing to project this messaging, it was clothing that was patterned with the, one of the most iconic designs in the history of the Olympics, and it wasn't even worn by the athletes. Yes. So do us a favor, dress listeners, stop what you're doing and Google Lance Wyman's Mexico 68 logo. It's amazing. But we should probably issue a word of caution that it might take you a minute or two to adjust your eyes to what you're (laughs) about to see. (laughs) Because it's kind of like this kinetic logo type that feels a little bit like op art. You know, and there's this incredible interview with Emmett Byrne for the Walker Art Design Magazine, The Gradient. And Wyman shared some insights into the creation of this 1968 logo that would go on to kind of inspire Fire the graphic programming for the entire Olympic Games there. And he says that the Mexico Olympic Committee's chairman, Pedro Ramirez Vasquez, told the then 29-year-old graphic artist to, quote, create an image showing that the games are in Mexico that isn't an image of a Mexican wearing a sombrero sleeping under a cactus. (laughs) Yeah, so let's move beyond the stereotype is basically what he's saying. And Wyman continues, he says, quote, the logo type happened in a very logical and intuitive way. It started when I realized the single lineal geometry of the five ring Olympic logo, which of course, stress listeners were all familiar with today, that that logo could be central to constructing the number 68, the year of the event. The resulting three line structure of the 68 numbers became the typography for the word Mexico and the logo was born. It was a logo that identified the event, the place, the year, and it probably broke every corporate rule of what not to do to the original logo, but it actually (laughs) made the five rings central and genesis to everything that followed. As Wyman reveals, the resulting graphic design program was inspired by both op art, yes, but also art found in both early and contemporary Mexican cultures that similarly employed bold graphic elements. And he says, quote, As soon as the similarity with Huicolcho's yarn painting became apparent, it made us realize that we really wanted to pursue graphic imagery that resonated as Mexican. We did very little research prior to going to Mexico. So the first week was spent at the Museum of Anthropology, researching indigenous folk art and ancient imagery in Mexican markets, understanding their local design, and in the street, taking photos of the work of local sign painters. Wyman and his team also worked directly with artists of the indigenous Huichol, or Huixaratari, people who create these incredibly colorful works of art known as Nayarica using yarn. So yarn paintings originated as part of the spiritual and ceremonial aspects of the Huichol culture associated with shamanic visions and dreams. And they really are both a tool used by shamans to have visions and also a representation of the vision themselves. By the 1950s, these had also become highly covetable commercial art pieces. Wyman speaks about the process the artists use to create yarn paintings using the Olympic logo. Quote, in one case, we made plywood square tablets emulating traditional Nayarica, silk screened the 68 logo on them, and then gave them to the Weichel. The artists covered these templates with wax into which they pushed strands of colored wool, creating beautiful color illustrations of birds and other traditional imagery. We use these tablets as an aid in developing our color programming. So also referencing ancient Aztec carvings, this resulting design program as a, as a mix of modern op art and also Mexico's rich artistic traditions, well, 
This was exactly what the Olympic Committee was hoping to project to the rest of the world during these games. You know, a country rooted in its past, but with their eyes firmly set on the future. Yes, and the incorporation of the graphics into the designs of the Mexico Olympics was immersive. The designs appeared on everything from advertisements, on posters, stamps, wall murals. The undulating pattern was even used on the floors of the Olympic Stadium. And designer Julia Johnson Marshall incorporated the logotype into her cape and mini dress uniform designs worn by the thousand plus young multilingual women hired to act as aide-de-cons or assistants for visitors to the Games. Lucky for us, two of these incredible uniforms, one in orange and white and the other in black and white, survive in LACMA's collection, which comes with an accompanying text by research assistant Joanna Reyes Walton, who wrote that, quote, This dress and cape set was issued along with two white mock turtleneck blouses and a pair of orange heels. Adecan uniforms were color-coded. Wearers of the orange dress were associated with the press office and escorted reporters and Olympic athletes to events throughout the Games. The Mexico 68 logotype is placed vertically at the center of the dress, running from nearly the neckline to the hem. It then expands into a series of evenly spaced lines, creating an all-encompassing pattern with the logo at its core. And of course, you know that we're going to post pictures of these. Oh, yeah. So you can see just how brilliantly Johnson Marshall translated Wyman's graphic into these garments. Amazing. Yeah, so, so cool. So by all accounts by the United States Olympic Committee, at least, Mexico's bid for modernity was successful. Dr. Gerhard C. Haas, a contributing author to the USOC Olympic book, wrote, Mexico City has all in all set new standards. One of them is the knowledge that Mexico, a country without rival in South American sport, has made a decisive stride into the future. When on the evening of 10-26-68, the Olympic fire was extinguished, Mexico had stood the test, which in itself can be of far-reaching importance for the development of its own sport, end quote. And he really was only one of the many contributing authors in this book who sang the Olympics' praises. This included Mira Poshaska, whose experience was one of, quote, complete joy and unanimity with no consideration of political borders and systems. I came to Mexico to find the peaceful and friendly youth of the world. And I found not only this genuine and happy youth with their Olympic ideals, I also found the heart of the whole charming Mexican nation. And as it turns out, Cass, the 1968 Olympics, well, They were neither peaceful nor politics-free. There was a very dark reality hiding behind the, you know, Mexican Olympic slogan, everything is possible with peace, that pretty girls in op-art dresses simply could not hide. And we will learn all about that after we synchronize our swim through this next sponsor break. As was evidenced by the 1936 Olympics in Hitler's Germany, the international sporting event of the Olympics really provides this global forum for this host country, whoever they may be, to impart whatever propaganda or political narrative they so choose. So with quite literally the world watching, governments have used the Olympics historically as this opportunity for a country to craft its own image, often a highly calculated image, and in many cases, completely manufactured image of what they want the world to see regardless of the reality. And thus was the case with Mexico City 68. 
So on October 2nd, 1968, only days before the opening ceremony of the Olympics, the government had sent armed troops to quell thousands of peaceful protesters who had gathered at the Plaza de las Tres Cultadas. The protest was only the latest in a series of demonstrations staged against the Olympics, which many viewed as a waste of money better spent on the other pressing social issues which burdened the country. The troops opened fire on the peaceful protesters, and while the government reported only four deaths, the number is actually thought to be in the hundreds and the highest estimates over 1,000 people. This was the backdrop of the 1968 Olympics in a city where colorful billboards masked this blood-stained plaza, evidence of the government's brutality towards its own citizens. Yeah, absolutely terrible. And this violent civil unrest in Mexico was mirrored by that in America, where both the Vietnam War and the civil rights movement were in full effect. 1968 was actually the deadliest year in the Vietnam War. It was also the year that both Martin Luther King Jr. and Senator Robert Kennedy were assassinated for their advocacy of civil rights. So the U.S. was really this country where for far too long, Americans of color had been treated like second-class citizens. It's important to remember that despite Black and other athletes of color winning gold medals since the second Olympiad in 1900, when they returned home to their countries, these decorated athletes were met with discrimination and racism running rampant in Europe and America. Example in point, after his history-making four gold medal wins in the Nazi Olympics in 1936, Jesse Owens returned home to a segregated United States. And President Roosevelt was so concerned with losing his Southern voters that he did not even send Owens a congratulations. And this was a snub that Owens felt very deeply. Yeah, and like so many groundbreaking Black athletes before him, Owens really paved the way for an entire generation of athletes who followed or ran in his footsteps. And that included two Black track stars by the names of Tommy Smith and Juan Carlos, who came to the 1968 Olympics as the fastest men in the world. They were both world record holders. Smith and Carlos were also both active members of the Olympic Project for Human Rights, or OPHR, an American organization whose aim was to bring awareness to and protest against racial segregation and racism in sports. So not only did Smith and Carlos come to the Olympics to win their track and field events, they came with something to say. And on October 16th, the two men stood on the Olympic winners' podium in a silent protest that was heard around the world. And believe me, dress listeners, clothing was part and parcel to its resonance to this very day. For a recollection of the event, we turn to Ebony Magazine, who in December of that year ran a photo editorial with an accompanying article that championed the Games as, quote, one of the most amazing Olympics in the history of the Games, where world records were broken or tied 67 times. But the author of this article goes on to say that despite these achievements, quote, the one thing which will be most remembered by all had nothing to do with athletic performance. It had to do with the Black protest, and it had to do with the petty action of the U.S. Olympic Committee following the protest. On the track, Smith performed like a superman, pulling a groin muscle while winning his semifinal heat in the 200-meter dash. He seemed an impossible starter for the finals scheduled for just two hours later. He not only started, he won the event in world record time, 19.8 <laughs> seconds. Carlos took third. What took place next will be long remembered. 
Yeah, so it was in the locker room just before the presentation of the medal ceremony for their wins in the 200 meter that Smith and Carlos each put on a black glove. They also each put on buttons that stated their allegiance to the Olympic Project for Human Rights and even gave one to the race's second place winner, the Australian sprinter, Peter Norman, who wore it in solidarity to their cause. All three men then headed to the medal stand and get this, Carlos and Smith were wearing no shoes. The Ebony article recounts what happened next. Quote, the Black athletes had been promising a strong demonstration, and it came when Smith and Carlos accepted their medals and turned to face the American flag for the playing of the national anthem. Standing motionless and looking down towards the ground, the athletes each raised a clenched Black-gloved fist in a Black power salute. With their heads bowed and lifted fist, they were saying that they were Black Americans who had performed to the best of their ability, and they protested the way their Black brothers had been treated in the very country they represented. And I will clarify that Tommy Smith, at least in post-interviews or over the years, has said that it was not a Black power salute, but a human rights salute. So in his book, Race, Culture, and the Result of the Black Athlete, the 1968 Olympic protests and their aftermath, author Douglas Hartman writes of this historic event. He writes, quote, In this moment was born one of the most vibrant and poignant images ever generated by that international spectacle of symbolism and myth-making we call the Olympic Games, end quote. So soon after the games, Tommy Smith recounted this event and the centrality address in relaying his message. He says that, quote, my raised right hand stood for the power in Black America. Carlos's raised left hand stood for the unity of Black America. Together, they formed an arch of unity and power. The Black scarf around my neck stood for Black pride. The Black socks with no shoes stood for Black poverty and racist America. The totality of our effort was the regaining of Black dignity, end quote. Hartman writes that it would be another 20 years before Smith would talk publicly about this historic moment, quote, but over the course of those years, the image he had helped to engineer would come for American audiences and many others around the globe to define the 1968 Mexico City Olympics and in many ways to transcend sport itself. Such an incredible story and one that we really encourage you to learn more about. I promise you that if you go and Google the 68 Olympics logo, images of of what we just described will also pop up at that same time, that they come up in tandem together. There is so much more to learn about the events and athletes that we've featured in this series so far. For starters, we recommend the Do Go On podcast episode called the 1968 Olympic salute, as well as 2020's documentary called The Stand, How One Gesture Shook the World, which is streaming now on Amazon Prime. Smith and Carlos's silent protest has inarguably become synonymous with the 1968 Olympic Games. But lesser known is the story of their record-smashing teammate, Wyoming Atias, who we heard for previously about... (laughs) not mincing any words about her athletic (laughs) uniform. She's not having Um, it. (laughs) So obviously she's back for another Olympics. She became the first athlete ever in the history of the Olympics up to this point to retain the 100 meter title with a world record making time of 11 seconds. She had previously taken home gold in the event at the 1964 Olympics. In her oral history with LA84, Tyus recalls that after Carlos and Smith's stand, there was a lot of talk among the Black American athletes about what they could also do to make a statement. In the end, however, she says that it became very individualized, and for her part, she chose to replace the team's white running shorts with black shorts. 
Quote, it was my way of protesting, she told NBC Sports in an interview last year. There was no need to talk about it. And she goes on, knowing what it feels like to be discriminated against growing up in the South, growing up during the Jim Crow era, being a Black woman, being told that my muscles are ugly. To me, that was part of my protest, she said. This is to show people all the things they say are not true. And in this way, all three of these athletes really subverted the intended messaging of the Olympic uniform. So long a symbol of national pride and uniformity, all three of them really reworked it into this powerful display of personal expression that spoke volumes about their beliefs without having to say a word. And you would never know it, however, from the Olympic Book of 68, which celebrated all three of these athletes' achievements in this series of full-color photographs. But IOC actually immediately suspended Smith and Carlos from the Olympic team and banished them from the Olympic village. A spokesman for the IOC calling their actions, quote, a deliberate and violent breach of the fundamental principles of the Olympic spirit, end quote. And if these conversations sound familiar, it is because they (laughs) absolutely are still happening today. In 2016, San Francisco 49ers quarterback Colin Kaepernick decision to kneel repeatedly at games during the national anthem in protest of Black oppression in the U.S. led him to being shunned by the sporting establishment. Quote, I am not going to stand up to show pride in a flag for a country that oppresses Black people and people of color. To me, this is bigger than football, and it would be selfish on my part to look the other way. Well, as we all know now, Kaepernick's career was more or less over at that point. No team would sign him. Fast forward to the events of last summer where the death of George Floyd spurred protests around the world and across sporting establishments. And these protests were actually led by a ton of players in both the NBA, the NLB, and the MLS. So that's the National Basketball Association, the Major League Baseball, and Major League Soccer leagues, respectively. Athletes in the NBA actually led a strike. They would not play. And they only agreed to resume playing after a commitment was made by the NBA to make real changes in addressing social justice issues that they cared about. This included the organization changing its policy towards athletes' rights to protest. And when players returned to the court, many of them kneeled together during the national anthem and played wearing jerseys that were inscribed with phrases such as Black Lives Matter and I Can't Breathe. And these were actions that only a few years prior had cost Kaepernick his career, and they were just now affecting real change. So Dallas Mavericks forward Dwight Powell told the undefeated.com, the phrase Black Lives Matter simply means that we believe Black Lives Matter. I don't understand how there can be any pushback to that statement in and of itself. Now tying organizations to it and their history or whatever it may be is another story. But I know for the fact that players in this locker room that have Black Lives Matter on their shirts when they're warming up and stand on the court proud, what they mean by that statement is that equality is the most important thing in terms of society and social justice and having a fair community to live in. No argument here on that point. Nope. (laughs) So with professional leagues now allowing their athletes to protest, what of their Olympic counterparts? And mind you, many of these professional players will also now be competing in the Olympics, especially players from the NBA. 
And that is a really great question, April, considering American athletes have already been using their platform and their clothing to protest at this year's Olympic trials. So last month, U.S. sprinter Noah Lyles raised a black gloved fist in the air mere moments before running in the 100-meter Olympic trial race. He later told reporters, quote, we're still dying in the streets. Just because we stopped talking about it in the news or just because the Olympics are going on doesn't mean it's not happening, end quote. U.S. hammer weight thrower Gwen Berry also recently used the Olympic trials to demonstrate, this time on the medal stand when she turned away from the Olympic flag when the anthem was played unexpectedly, placing her black t-shirt that read activist athlete over her head. Quote, the anthem doesn't speak for me. It never has, she told reporters. In response to the backlash, Barry took to Twitter saying that people's criticism really shows that, quote, people in America rally patriotism over basic morality. Even after the murder of George Floyd, she said, and so many others, the commercial statements and phony sentiments regarding Black lives were just a hoax. So in response to this tidal wave of activism from athletes over the past year, the IOC recently updated their regulations regarding protests and demonstrations. And the New York Times journalist Andrew Kay reported earlier this month on the new rules, and he makes a clear reference to Carlos and Smith's legacy and the role that dress has played in athletic demonstration ever since. He writes, athletes will now quote, theoretically be allowed to wear an article of clothing, so a shirt with a slogan or a glove, for example, or make a symbolic gesture like kneeling or raising a fist to express their views on an issue before the start of their events, they still will not be allowed to conduct any sort of demonstration on the field of play, on the podium during medal ceremonies in the Olympic Athletes Village, or at the opening and closing ceremonies of the game. Kay calls this, quote, a small but symbolically significant concession. So basically, Lyle's actions done before the competition are legal, but Barry's done on the medal stand are not. And this is how it stands currently. And 50 years plus since Smith and Carlos's fist raised scene around the world, Olympic athletes are still barred from protesting during the games and on medal stands. And the IOC decision was based on a recent survey that the organization conducted in which they interviewed 3,500 athletes from around the world. And in that survey, 70% of them believed it inappropriate for an athlete to demonstrate or express their views during medal ceremonies or on the field. And I will say that for their part, the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee has broken from the IOC and their support of athletes' rights to protest. And they actually recently produced a list of permissible and impermissible actions. Permissible actions are defined as a demonstration that is, quote, explicitly aimed at, one, advancing racial and social justice, or two, promoting the human dignity of individuals or groups that have historically been underrepresented, minoritized, or marginalized in their respective social context, end quote. And this list of permissible actions includes kneeling on the podium, raising one's fist, vocal advocation for equal rights, and wearing any number of items of clothing, so hat or face mask, with um, items such as Black Lives Matter, Trans Lives Matter, or words like equality, justice, peace, respect, solidarity, inclusion. All of those things the U.S. OPC will allow. Overall, however, the USOPC makes clear that their rules do not replace the international rules set forth by the IOC, and they state six separate times in their statement that the organization is not the ultimate arbitrator um, on protests at the Games. That distinction specifically belongs to the IOC. So this begs the question, what will we see during the Tokyo Olympics? 
of 2020-2021? And will clothing be part of any potential protests? Yeah, and that, of course, remains to be seen. The Olympic Games are happening as we record this. But there is no doubt that at these games, athletes will continue to find courage and strength in the actions of these pioneering athletes who came before them, literally clothed in silent and peaceful protest. Their actions and clothing speak volumes without having to say one word. With that, we conclude part three of our four-part series on dressing the summer Olympic athlete. Be sure and tune in on Thursday for the conclusion of our series where we enter the era of corporate fashion sponsorship and also technological innovations that have defined the clothing worn by Olympic athletes up until the present day. Until then, may you consider the legacy of political protest in your wardrobe next time you get dressed. And remember, we love hearing from you. So please email us at dressed at iheartmedia.com. You can also direct message us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, where you'll find images to accompany each week's episode. Follow us along on Facebook at Dressed Podcast without the underscore. And as always, special thanks to Casey Pagram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes the show possible each and every week. More Dress Thursday. Dressed, the history of fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.